Happiness Talk, a podcast on being complete in Christ, hosted by Buzz Sprout with your hosts, Wendell Martins and Allie Murphy. Today we're talking about the philosophical God. Are there any arguments for the proof of God? Is morality tied to a belief in God? And can God create a stone so big that he cannot lift it? All this and more, so stay tuned. This podcast is being listened to from as far away as the UK and United Arab Emirates, as well as our neighbors to the south and across Canada. Please keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Chelly's Talk. Today, as Laurel said, we're on the second part of our series on God. Last time, we looked at the difference between Big G, or God Almighty, and the little G's of this world, past and present. If you missed that episode, it can be found on iTunes, Spotify, as well as our Patreon page and YouTube channel. So while researching for these episodes or this episode, I came across a dialogue featured online in the LA Times in 2014. The article was entitled, In Theory, Is Morality Tied to a Belief in God? The the article starts with findings by the Pew Research Center that said many people worldwide, particularly those who live in poorer countries, are of the opinion that one must believe in God to be a moral person. However, according to the same report, more people in North America and in Europe agree that one can actually be an upright person whether or not they believe in God or are religious. So then the question was asked in the article, what is your take on the various views across the globe linking morality to a belief in God? And what ensued afterwards is a beautiful torrent of people waxing philosophically about God and morality. And I think that's what we're going to do today, right? Yeah, so today's going to be a little heavy. Talking about philosophy of God is what we're going to do today. Immanuel Kant possessed one of the greatest minds in the history of Western philosophy. His teachings regarding epistemology and ethics still influence our thinking today. Kant realized that try as we might, we cannot make our consciences go away. Our sense of right and wrong motivate us to act ethically and morally in certain ways. And without these ethics and morals, there would be utter chaos in society. Kant rightly argued that living a moral life only makes sense if there is justice. We sacrifice our self-interest for the good of others only if we know that we will be rewarded. However, since justice is not perfect in this life, the only way for justice to prevail is if there is an afterlife. Moreover, the only way justice can prevail in the afterlife is if there is a judge who is omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly just. And then in, in, in 1884, after Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was born. And he, was, he is largely responsible for bringing the phrase, God is dead, into the public realm or the public consciousness. And this idea of God is dead basically allows us to defend our depravity or our sinfulness. Because if God is dead, then we only answer to ourselves. If God is dead, then all is permissible. So if that happens, then we succumb to the philosophy of anarchy, where it's the strong who inherit the earth. In this philosophy, truth is relative. And what is true for me is not necessarily true for others. And we rebel against this higher power because we want to be gods ourselves. Uh, We don't want to answer to anyone. We don't want accountability. And when that happens... Anarchy reigns. Just look at what's happening in Seattle and Portland and other places in the United States right now. It's pure anarchy. But the warning that has to go out with this idea from uh, Nietzsche about God is dead. If God is dead, 
then ultimately we don't have any purpose. What is our purpose for being? R.C. Sproul once said, human dignity is rooted in the holiness of God. It reflects God's dignity. If we're going to talk about the philosophy of God, we are going to have to answer the question of who we see ourselves to be. Last month, we asked this question, how is God recognized throughout history? How has God been worshipped? And how does our view of God today depend on ancient belief systems? Philosophers philosophizing about God can be traced back to Plato. Although he believed in a pantheon of gods, he made the statement that God is necessary. And this notion of the necessity of God gave rise to theological and philosophical thought, which continues to this day. In a sense, we are asking if God is necessary, what are the proofs or arguments for God? Now, Augustine was highly influential in how we understand God today. Influenced by Pauline theology, the philosophy of God presented by Augustine seeped into 5th century doctrine, which in turn became the foundation of philosophy in the earliest universities and seminaries around the world. And following on from Augustine, there comes the cosmological argument, which basically says that in order for anything to exist, there has to be a causation. There has to be a reason it exists. There has to be a cause for its existence. So science has come to a point now where it says that everything came from a, a finite point in history and that everything must have come from some timeless, immaterial, powerful, and intellectual thing because of the nature and the complexity of our universe. So what kind of cause would this have had to have been to have created the universe? Well, there's really only two answers to that question. So either there was something that came from nothing or the first cause was God. And if we look at God's word, that's how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God. God starts to tell his narrative from his beginning. You know, even Plato agreed with that when he said God is the beginning, the middle, and end of all. He is the supreme mind or reason, the effectual cause of all things, eternal, unchangeable. Oftentimes, this argument is criticized by non-theists for being the whiny child argument. And basically, the criticism says that after a child asks you why, too many times you say in exasperation, because God, you know, and <laughs> people say, you just give God the, the excuse that God did it because you don't really know yourself. But the mm -hmm. question really that's being asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? Or even more simply, why am I here? Mm. And that, that brings about the question of being. And this is a question which was asked by Aristotle and later by Thomas Aquinas, uh, when looking at the necessity of being. Much of Thomas Aquinas's thought is an attempt to understand Christian orthodoxy in terms of Aristotelian philosophy. See, for Aristotle, the existence of the universe it needs to have an explanation, as it could not have come from nothing. There has to be a cause for the universe. For something to come from nothing, there has to have been some other something that created its cause. You know, continuing on with this argument, uh, there's sort of a rabbit trail argument called the Kalam argument or the Kalam reasoning for God. It just says that accepting that there cannot be an infinite regression of temporal causes, we can conclude that the past must be finite and the universe has a beginning. So basically you can't say um, this had a cause and that had a cause and that had a cause and that had a cause. 
for infinity because really infinity it has no timeline so we're saying that there must be a first cause and so this is the premise of the Coulomb argument which establishes that the universe has a cause whatever caused the creation of the universe is eternal and exists out of necessity yeah and whatever begins to so basically whatever begins to exist has a cause uh, like you said the universe began to exist therefore it must have a cause and then the question is begged well what is or what was the cause and clearly it it is the creation the the, the universe is the creation of an infinite being but then you might ask well hold on wouldn't that mean that this infinite being which exists must also have had a cause to make it exist and the answer is simply no because god exists because of necessity and this is something that we have a hard time getting our minds around because we have to remember that we have finite thinking whereas we, we cannot think like god and we struggle with this because we forget that god exists timelessly mm -hmm. if you remember in exodus 3 um, when moses met god at the burning bush and he asked god well who should i tell the people have sent me and god says i am who i am or as it was uh, repeated in, 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 by Jesus and recorded in John's gospel, uh, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. So therefore, what they're saying is that God doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have a creation. He doesn't have a cause. God just is. William Lane Craig uh, wrote that although scriptural authors usually speak of God as temporal and everlasting, there is some evidence, at least, that when God is considered in relation to creation, he must be thought of as the transcendent creator of time and the ages, and therefore he is existing beyond time. So we'll come to the third argument. This is called the ontological argument for God. And the monk Anselm of Canterbury once said, if it's possible that God exists, then it follows logically that God does exist. This is known as the study of being and existence. The thought is that anything logically coherent could exist. For example, and if you have a Scottish background, put up your hands, there could be a unicorn. However, there could never be married bachelors. No, it's a contradiction. Right. And, and what uh, Anselm was saying is that it's possible that a maximally great being exists. It's totally possible. And that... If that maximally being great being exists, it would have to exist in some possible world. And if the maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it's possible that it can exist in every world. So therefore, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it can exist in the actual world. And if that maximally great being, or unicorn, exists in the actual world, then that great being exists. But then, does that make this idea of a maximally great being absurd? Like, doesn't that make the idea of unicorns existing absurd? Well, the notion of an all-powerful, morally perfect, all-knowing, maximally great being in every possible world is not contingent on how relative it is to us. And I think we have to agree that a unicorn is not an all-powerful, morally perfect, all-knowing, maximally great being. However, if we're going to talk about God, these are very good descriptions of who God is. And the idea no. of God is an intuitively coherent idea, and therefore his existence is a possibility. So, 
if God possibly exists, then God does exist. Which then moves us on to another argument. And I just want listeners to understand that we are just giving snapshots of these arguments. You can spend years studying one of these arguments on its own. Um, So the next argument would be the fine-tuning argument. And this argument is considered to be the most logical uh, based of all the arguments for the existence of God or the existence of an all-powerful being. Mm -hmm. Um, It's popular among physicists, astrophysicists, and philosophers. The philosopher John Leslie said that resorting to a multiverse argument is to ignore the simplicity of fine-tuning. The fine-tuning argument is not one which shows that the universe was designed for man, right? Yeah. So the argument is this. In order for intelligent life of any sort to exist, the universe has to have its fundamental constancy and qualities which fall within an exquisitely narrow, yet practically infinitesimal life-permitting range. So if the universe were not the product of intelligent design, it was all probably life-prohibiting rather than life-permitting. So to, to simplify, God must exist because we exist. And if life exists at all, it is because it was meant to. And if life was meant to exist, then the design was intentional. And if the design was intentional, there was an intelligent designer. And if there's an intelligent designer, that designer must be God. So you see, if we're left to fate and chance, there would be no life at all. The physicist uh, Tom Rudelius says, fine-tuning suggests that the laws of physics has something to do with you and me. And you had mentioned before that Ray Comfort, the, uh, the evangelist and street preacher, Ray Comfort, um, he enjoys using this argument of fine-tuning. Um, and I, an example I remember from when I was younger was this idea that if a tornado passed through a junkyard, you wouldn't be left with a Boeing 747 at the end of it. No. Right? Chaos cannot create complexity. That's basically what the argument is. Um, so for there to be complexity, for there to be something that's designed like a Boeing 747, you have to have a plain designer. You can't, it just can't come from, from a random tornado. That's right. Um, if we move from the fine-tuning argument to another argument called the moral argument, John Rist said that there is widely admitted to be a crisis in the contemporary Western debate about ethical foundations. We ignore the fact that all morality is contingent on the existence of God. And this ignorance is quickly leading us to a place where our culture can no longer sustain itself. We go back to what we, were, what we mentioned about Seattle and uh, Portland and other cities in the USA, where if we ignore the existence of God, it leads to anarchy. And so the moral argument for God states that if objective moral values exist, then God exists. And because moral values do exist, therefore God does exist. Maybe you can explain um, how that works, though. This is how the argument works. To begin with, moral values exist whether or not a person or a culture believes in them. So what happens when we encounter, at least on the face of it, we start with morally clear cases and work to the unclear. In light of apparent moral conflict, it would be a faulty jump to conclude that morality is relative. As lexographer Samuel Johnson put it, the fact that there is such a thing as twilight does not mean that we can't distinguish between day and night. Morality, as with truth, is not relative. Therefore, conflict reveals a perversion of the character of morality and not a fault in its design. Yeah. C.S. Lewis um, commented on this when he wrote, 
a man does not know, or sorry, a man does not call a crooked line, a crooked line, unless he has some idea of what a straight line looks like. So therefore, we cannot judge injustice unless we have a concept of what pure justice is. And we cannot grade morality without having a perfect moral law. So how do we get this idea of uh, moral and immoral issues? How did, we, how did this come to be in us if there wasn't a moral lawgiver, a God? We're going to work on another argument here. It's been known as both the analogical and teleological argument. Um, Alvin Plantinga has famously said that we don't need arguments for God. Halfway through our arguments for God, we get to a philosopher who says we don't need arguments for God. Um, <laughs> now, you could be perfectly sensible, rational, reasonable, intellectually okay, believing in God without believing in the basics of argument. And this is how most people believe in God. And Alvin Plantinga feels that this really is the proper way. The fact that you can believe without arguments doesn't mean that there aren't some arguments. I think we are establishing that right now. Among a few of these are metaphysical and epistemological. I would encourage everyone to look those up. We won't be touching on them today. Ultimately, Planaga has the view that we can argue for God without having to convert our opponents first. Atheists take their worldview for granted, and they argue from their perspective. Christians should tackle their philosophical arguments in exactly the same way. If we believe God exists, then our arguments should start from that point. Exactly. Again, start from where the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. And so the analogical reasoning is one of the most, it's one of the most common methods by which human beings recognize that it has a design. A design. We immediately recognize that there has to be a designer. You have a plane, there has to have been someone who designed the plane. You have a building, there was an architect who designed the building. So since the world, on this analysis, is closely analogous to the most intricate artifacts produced by human beings, we have to conclude that by all the rules of analogy, the existence of an intelligent designer must be. And that intelligent designer is the one who created the world. So just like a watch, make, a watch has a watchmaker, then the universe has a universe maker. So now we get to this uh, thing called the paradox of the stone. We've worked through a few arguments for God. This is a philosophical thought that goes around a lot of circles. It's very popular among budding theists and atheists to propose questions of absurdity in order to prove God cannot be what he claims to be or what Christianity describes him to be. Among these questions is one which people, most people anyway, have heard. It is referred to as the paradox of the stone. Here it goes. Can God create a stone that he cannot lift? If he can create such a stone, then he is not all-powerful, since he himself cannot lift it. On the other hand, if he cannot create a stone that cannot be lifted, then he is not all-powerful, since he cannot create the unliftable stone. Either way, God is not powerful, or not all-powerful anyway. And, and this is this seems to be like a no-win uh, no win situation when you first present it. Um, Thomas Aquinas, once again, said that God cannot do contradictory things. Just as God cannot create a square circle or get a divorce, God can only do what is logically possible. And some have argued that God could create an unliftable stone, 
but then he would have to proceed to lift it. Uh, and uh, Rene Descartes argued against Aquinas when he said that God could do anything, even if it's logically impossible. The problem with this question, though, is that it's really an incoherent idea. It's a philosophical trap, which outs the asker as being one who does not understand why the coherence of philosophy is so important. It is the same trap that many fall into when discussing the problem of evil. When we speak of God, we refer to him as a perfect being, not as a gradation of goodness, but as being the pinnacle of perfection. The philosophical mind always asks this question, how can this be rationalized? And since God is a rational being, how is God's perfection a function of his rational being? But what is the question that we want to answer? What is the difference between God and man? This harkens back to what we talked about last month, and it builds its foundation on what we have discussed today. The real difference between God and us is being. R.C. Sproul said this, God alone has being in and of himself. He alone has eternal being. Any being that I have is transitory. Any being that I have is dependent. It's contingent. It's derived. It's a subset of pure being. Yeah, and, and the Greek philosopher, uh, poet philosopher, um, artist, um, who was actually quoted by Paul in the book of Acts, said that in him, so in God, we live and we move and we have our being. And each verb in this, in this verse or this quote has a philosophical significance. So the first is, in him we live. So in God, we exist and we have life in him, through him. Second, we are ethical beings. Right? So in him we live and we move. Um, we have feelings, um, being moved by things like passion or fear or hate or love. And finally, um, in him we have our being. We are beings which possess a will and an intellect. We could not have those if there was not a creator God. J.B. Phillips in his book, uh, Your God is Too Small, says that our view of God is either constructive or destructive. It's either unreal or adequate. It's either a crutch or it's one who holds us in the palm of his hand. So when we started this episode, you mentioned an article from 2014 in the LA Times which asked if morality was tied to a belief in God. Of the nine respondents to the question, only one came up with this answer. The most fundamental truth of all is that God exists. Right and wrong are rooted in who he is, not what man thinks. A moral person, therefore, is one who acknowledges the truth about God and conforms to his law. Romans chapter 1 says this, All which is known about God is evident within them, or all mankind. For God made it evident to them. And this answer was written by John Barta. All philosophical arguments for God are based on that statement from Romans. That which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. God, as the philosophical God, is revealed through his rational being, not existing beyond logic, but within it, because he created it. It's a reflection of who he is. And we, as beings created in his image, can know God through the nature of who we are in him. When we remove God from the question of morality, it becomes dependent on our fallen nature. And of course, morality is grounded in God. God wrote his law in our hearts. But our society believes, as did most of the respondents to this question, that truth is relative 
And morality is tied to that truth. And this is why we, as a society, are in trouble. Such an answer is devoid of hope. Such an answer is sad. Yeah. Our, our listeners may be kind of, you know, having their brains exploded, but the question might come, well, what's the point? What's the point in, in arguing? Um, is it wrong? Is it unbiblical to argue for God? Because you know, he can do it himself. It's common for opponents of apologetics and the philosophical arguments that we've been discussing today to turn to uh, Paul's book in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is quoted as saying, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom. My message and preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Um, and so they, people who argue against this type of discussion, they hope to toss out um, the human arguments for God's existence um, and just to focus on Scripture, which is nothing wrong with that. However, Paul also wrote to the church in, in, uh, in Colossia, um, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principle of the world, rather than according to Christ. And remember, Paul himself debated the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens when he was uh, waiting there for uh, his fellow workers to show up. Yes, so these, these verses really sound great, and it, it feels like a very good argument. Um, unfortunately, the context where these verses uh, appear doesn't support the arguments of those who would stand in opposition to apologetics or to these arguments for God that we've discussed. You see, Paul knew that the readers of his letters were steeped in a cultural rhetoric of vain philosophy designed to glorify the speaker. And although it considered the pursuit of truth a worthy endeavor, the focus really was on bettering or battering your opponent through persuasion and increasing one's admiration among the hearers. Truth, although admirable, was irrelevant. Our discussion today really was to show how the clear teaching of Scripture aligns and informs a rational argument for the existence of God. Paul himself lays out proofs and arguments for God throughout Romans and the book of Acts. The idea of forming an argument for the existence of God is really illustrated best when we read 1 Peter 3, verse 15. It says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, whether that be apologetic or argumentative, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You know, the truth of God has been revealed in and through and by creation. God not only inspired the Bible as his word, he also created the world, which included rational human beings who have the capability to know, to judge, to reason, and so therefore can be persuaded by the truth. John 8, verse 31 to 32 says this, Then Jesus said to those who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think that's a really good place to conclude <laughs> today's episode. Um, I know that for us, it's been a really, it's been a difficult task to really kind of um, write this and to present it because it's not an easy discussion. Sure. But I think it's important that our listeners um, understand it 
because like Paul says, or sorry, like Peter said, you know, we have to always be ready to make a defense for the hope that we have. And the only way we can make a defense of our hope is if we understand what the opposition are saying in opposition to our hope. So maybe we can end this episode with, with a, a word of prayer. Sure. Father God, we stand humbly before you. We stand before you, your, your creation, uh, reflections of your being, rational thinking humans who believe in a God who has proven himself in many, many ways. We thank you that you give us this opportunity to look into not only who you are, but looking into the proofs for God, looking into the arguments for God, really searching through our ability to rationalize and to think and see that in that work, you are glorified. Father God, we, uh, we come into times in our lives which, which cause struggles. We come into times in our lives which cause confusion. And we pray that when we come into those times, that how we think about who you are and how we um, understand how you have revealed yourself is something that can strengthen, something that can correct, something that can discipline. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you speak to us in all sorts of ways. You speak to us in our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would go with us and give us protection, give us safety, and draw us near to you daily. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, till next time, everybody take care, and I will talk to you later, brother. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you again. Good night. You've been listening to Telios Talk, a podcast on being complete in Christ. Thanks for joining us. Please visit our Facebook page for discussions, articles, and more podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and Buzzsprout.